Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. All right, what is up, everybody? Welcome to episode two of this most fantastic pod venture. If you're watching on YouTube again, and if you're not, I'm going to describe it. We're sitting down at uh, Shave Horses, yes. and they're actually in a very... Uh, amazing apparatus it's a it's a chair that swivels it's got a footrest the front of it swivels it's got like a a foot operated clamp that you can clamp your your bow down in as as you can see uh with jim over here i'm the demonstrator and this is about where jim and i have been posted up for the last two and a quarter days it's become quite comfortable we've been working on bows with Mr. Clay Hayes, we're down in we're down in the Panhandle of Florida right now on the Hayes Ranch. So, we had uh, in the previous pod venture, which I definitely recommend any not pod venture the previous podcast of this pod venture. Yes, I recommend everybody tune into that because that was a good one. We introduced Clay. We talk a lot about his history and how he got into hunting and how he got into bow building, his time with the uh, the you know uh, natural resources and all that good stuff. So anyway, lots of really, really interesting stuff there. But now we're going to get a little bit into the nitty gritty of yes. the what and the how of what we've been doing the last the couple days here. Super cool thing that we've done here. So, and we're actually, our bows, Jim, are outside drying right now. Yep, we put that little coating on them, the urethane. Yeah. Yeah, what was the uh, what was the the coating that we just put on them to kind of finish them, Clay? Just uh, spar urethane. Spar urethane, which that's really that's one of the more final steps. We're gonna back up there and we're mm-hmm. gonna talk about exactly how one might go about building a bow. Yes. As well as which I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, spoiler alert. I'm gonna give you the best tip of uh, how to build a bow. You come down here with Clay or up to Idaho and you build one with him. Correct. I so, was gonna say the same exact thing. But, Clay, yeah, where do we start? Where yeah, would you start with this? Probably, yeah. Well, you start with a tree. That's yeah. The tree is highly important. Yeah. And not just any old tree. That's right. So most of the bows that I make are make, made out of uh, a species called Osage Orange, uh, and it grows mostly in the Midwest, but there's also a band of it on the Black Prairie area of central Alabama and also up the Mississippi, uh, up into northeast Mississippi. Uh, and that's where a lot of this wood came from, is around the Montgomery, Alabama area. And I go up there and cut uh, cut this Osage, split it up, stick it in a barn for a couple of years and let it dry. Now, that's a very simplified version of what happens. Because, because first off, I'm curious, why Osage? Why not a maple or a pine or whatever? And then, and then also, it's not even just any old Osage. Once you, act, you you might finally find an osage and be like, oh, good. Now I'm now I'm in the clear. But but not even necessarily that. Yeah, yeah. So we'll start with why osage. Uh, so there's a lot of different woods that you can make bows out of, and a lot of different woods will make pretty good bows. Osage, in my opinion, is probably the best, and it's available here close by, and so that's what I'm naturally going to use. But if you're interested in bow making, you don't have access to osage you don't need to, to worry about it. You know, you can make bows out of hard maple, like rock maple um, and things like that. You can make them out of hickory, hornbeam, uh, elms, Pacific yew or vine maple if you're out west, hmm. uh, like on the oh, west wow. coast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's lots of different species that'll make bows, so don't get hung up on that. But like I said, if you do have Osage, that's like top rung. That's, that's top shelf stuff. 
But as you said, not just any Osage. You're just not going to go out and, and say, there's an Osage tree right there. There's, I'm going to make a bow out of that. You could get lucky and find one, but normally Osage tends to be a very gnarly tree. So it grows all twisted and knotty and, and crooked. And so most of the time you have to look through, you have to kind of high grade it. You got to look through a bunch of trees to find one that's worth cutting because it's a lot of work to cut that tree and then to split it and age it and all that stuff. Because they don't make themselves easy to cut, do they? No, they don't make themselves easy. Um, Osage tends to grow in clumps. And so when you, it's, it's difficult to fell these trees because when you cut one, the branches get all, they're all interwoven with other trees and they, they just don't fall. And so you're, there's a lot of like limbing and cutting and, and things like that. And then to add to that, they're thorny. Oftentimes they're covered in poison ivy. Uh, so it's not a, it's not a, an enjoyable process to go cut bow wood. It's a lot of sticky, hard, hot work. The wood better be dank. I mean, is it, not to go back to that, but is it super hard or something? It's is very that... dense. It's heavy. Uh, it, it's, it's incredibly heavy. You know, okay. if you were to, if you were to pick up a good piece of Osage versus, pine or something like that it would be very noticeable the okay. difference in the weight yeah. of that wood are those are those similar attributes that those other types of wood have that you can make bows out of or do they all kind of carry the same thing or they're just their own animal but they still you can still make a bow out of it yeah it's it, it's they all have their unique characteristics and you would just design the bow to take advantage of those characteristics like mm. osage tends to do well like the the type of design that i like to use is maybe around an inch and a quarter to inch and three eighths wide, 60 to 64 inches long. Uh, and then the limbs, when it's all said and done, they end up about, you know, somewhere between 13 and 15 millimeters thick. If I was to be building bows out of um, something like a hard maple or a hickory or something like that, I might make it a little bit wider or a little bit longer because those woods aren't typically as good at resisting compression Mm. and when that's a very important characteristic of a good bow wood is its ability to withstand or resist compression and also tension and so if you think about when you are shooting a bow and holding the bow you know the back of the bow is the part that faces away from you the belly is the part that faces you as you're holding this thing well when you draw a bow the belly is being compressed or trying to be crushed and the back is under tension. It's trying to pull those fibers apart. Mm-hmm. And so good bow wood has to be able to withstand both of those forces. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, I'm picturing like in an extreme scenario, but even when you just break a stick, it seems like, you know, you break a stick like this. And like you said, those fibers on the backside yep. want to come apart. Yep. Right. Exactly. And that's why back in the day, I mean, way back, when you know they're making, they weren't even trad bows at that time. They were pretty modern bows, but they were making them out of like the the belly had you know a, a horn or a bone or some sort of material there, and the backside had that sinew, right? Yep. And and that was the idea of getting something that's really resisting compression, then something that's also stretching. Yeah, that's a perfect example of a, a composite bow. That's not that's not a self bow, but it's okay. a it's a it's a natural composite bow. And the reason that they use that combination of materials is because on the belly side, the horn is incredibly resistant to compression. I mean, it's like way beyond wood. And the the sinew is very, very good at withstanding that tension force. I mean, think about its function in, in, a, in a living body. You know, that's what it does. Yeah. And so by marrying those two and compositing those two, you have the just 
amazing tool that performs very well. Yeah. So self bow though, like you just said there, those aren't self bow necessarily because they're they're multiple materials. Self bow is like all one material. You just basically, it's in the woods somewhere. You just expose it by yep. by getting rid of everything that's not the bow. Yeah. According to Clay. So with the getting getting back to the trees real quick though. So we're talking about how Osage grows and like twisty gnarly and it sounds like I can just picturing it you know hung up in other trees and poison ivy I mean it sounds um like I said wonderful yeah sounds wonderful <laughs> uh like I said you want to pick to go through all that work you want to pick the right tree so what what does it like I feel like it's like one of those dating shows describe your perfect tree Clay yeah so when I'm going through the woods I'm looking for First of all, Osage. And then once I found a group of Osage, uh, I'm looking at this group of trees and I'm trying to find one that has a relatively straight section. And then another big thing that I'm looking for is I'm look, I'm reading the bark and I'm looking for one that does not spiral around the tree. Mm-hmm. And you can see that, you know, you can see that spiral in the bark if you look down one of those things, because what happens on the bark is also happening underneath the bark in the wood. And so if you cut one of those trees that has that, that bark that spirals around the tree, when you go to split that, your stave is going to have a twist to it. Mm-hmm. Now that's, as you guys saw during your boat building process, that's not a deal breaker. You know, you can fix that. But if we're talking like perfect ideal tree, it's not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to avoid that. Basically, like if I were to, if, if I were to find a perfect tree, it would be a stove pipe with straight up bark, straight grain. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that's your ideal tree. That's very, very rare. (laughs) (laughs) And so that, you know, once you get it down, part of the reason, like he said, is that when you start splitting it, now this was was pretty interesting. I thought it was one of the first things we did when we got here is we saw you, you know, splitting up a big section of tree. And this was where the idea of finding the bow in the tree, so to speak, really first started to come to light because... You might think you're starting with something really big and you're trying to get it down to this small, relatively petite bow inside. So you're going to start, you know, you're going to get out the big old giant like lumber saw and you're going to run it along the saw a couple times, make it a nice square and then, you know, figure out a bunch of stuff. Just keep sawing stuff off until you get to that shape. But, But instead, you're actually you're working with the tree. Everything is working with these grains in the tree and splitting the tree and figuring out what way it wants to split. That's part of the reason why finding a straight one, I'm sure, is mighty helpful. Yeah, yeah. So you don't, you wouldn't want to saw the, saw a stave out of one of these trees because when you do that, you're going against the grain, especially, you know, if you have a, a, a piece of wood that has a little bit of wiggle in the grain or maybe it has a little bit of spiral in it. And so if you saw, you've got grain that runs across the limb and that just creates a weak point. So ideally when I, when I create a bow, I want that grain to run all the way from one end up through the bow to the other end. And it's the same way if like, if you're picking out ax handles, like a good hickory ax handle, like you want, you want that grain to run all the way up it, right? You don't want that grain running across the, that ax handle because that's just a weak point and it's gonna it'll eventually break there sure yeah you described it as uh the frosting layers between different layers of cake <laughs> and usually your cake always comes apart at that frosting layer yeah when does. you don't want it to so on an average 
I guess, log, if you will, how many staves are you cutting out of that then? It really depends on the tree, obviously how big the tree is. Um, but if I, let's say my ideal tree is going to be 12 inches diameter, it's going to be a perfect uh, cylinder and it's going to be straight. You know, I could get maybe 12 staves out of that thing. Oh, wow. But that's like hmm. if everything goes perfect. Yeah. Sure. And it never goes perfect. <laughs> like um, that that one we split the other day, like how many do you think you'll get I'll out of that one? I'll probably get six. I'll probably get six staves out of that. Okay. All right. And to give an idea of a stave, too, for those watching on YouTube, they can mm-hmm. see we're surrounded by staves currently. And uh, they're about, oh, gosh, I don't even know how to give an idea on size of them. But do you ha- do you know generally like what size he's come out to? No, like- these are probably a little over six feet, and I don't know, maybe two and a half inches across the across the the backside here, which sure. would be this. Because they kind of come out looking like a pie. Yeah, they're kind of pie shaped. Pie shaped cross section, but getting back to the density of this wood too. You know, I mean, yeah, like this is just so heavy. Like it does is- not look like it should be as heavy as it is. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the characteristics of good wood. Even within Osage, you know, there's there's heavy wood and then there's light wood, and typically the heavier wood is going to make the better bow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Isn't like oak super heavy wood? They make bows out of oak. Um, yeah, like we have some live oak up above us here that's sawn in the slabs for tabletops, and that stuff is inc- it's terribly heavy. Doesn't make a very good bow. Weird. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know what it is, but, um, you know, it'll make a bow. It's just sure. not going to be, it's not going to perform as well as a, an equivalent Osage bow. Interesting. One of the other notable things is, let's say you go out, you find the perfect Osage, you chop it down. Great. Now it's time to make a bow. Oh, wait. No, it's not. In two <laughs> years or so, thereabouts, we'll be making a bow with that. Okay, so... You've, you you split them out into these staves, and we went into your sort of uh, your dry box here, if you will, your storage. And there's staves that have been sitting in there since the '90s. There's staves that have been sitting in there since since recent times. You got them. I mean, they have to age like fine wine or old barrels of whiskey or something. Yep. Yep. So Osage in particular, because it is so dense, it takes a long time to dry, and dry wood is important because if you start making a bow if you start bending that wood when it's too wet it doesn't have that resiliency to snap back to its original shape and that's really one of the the markers of good wood is when you bend it it pops right back it doesn't stay bent Uh, but if the wood is too green it just it stays bent you know it's uh like if you're bending you know parts for a chair or something like that you'd steam that wood bend it get it get some moisture in it and then it's let it dry like that. It's going to retain that shape. So the aging process is important for a lot of bow woods, but Osage in particular. But with that said, you could take a wood like hickory. You could go out. We could go right now to the river bottom. We could hack down a hickory tree, strip the bark off, make a bow out of it, not bend it until it's dry, but we could rough one out. And then it's going to dry because it's it's much reduced in its in its bulk. Sure, it's going to oh. dry much much faster, and you could have a bow done out of that in a month. Whereas you're talking gears with Osage, mm. 
How about one of those like hard maples? You get it at Home Depot. You just buy yourself like a big board. Oh yeah, that's a great way and a great way to, for people to get started because they can go get a a piece of hard maple for ten bucks, one by two, and you need to back it with something. So that means make a composite bow. So you glue rawhide or something else to okay. the back to take off to take that tension force, um, and you can make a bow out of that. But it's you know it's it's not going to make probably not going to make a great bow yeah but when you're first starting unless you're you have someone that knows what they're doing looking over your shoulder it's not about making the best bow in history it's about learning about making bows because you, there's a lot of stuff to learn you know there's a lot of mistakes to make and, and and you need to be able to make those mistakes so that you can learn from them and so it's a lot easier to stomach making a mistake on a ten dollar board than a hundred dollar piece of Osage, for sure. Yeah, no, for sure. And like ten like, times easier, as a matter I, of fact. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think like we said uh, earlier, uh, you know, probably the best tip is if you've never done this before. Is I, I feel like it's like you know infomercial for Clay's class, but also like I don't know, like I equate it to like if you're gonna go steelhead fishing for the first time, Clay, you love steelhead fishing. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I dream about it. This, Seriously, this, he would rather do. Nothing else than yeah. Steelhead fishing <laughs> this all this the might time. be it. This this might be one point where Clay and I disagree. <laughs> but but let's, let's say you're like, oh, I'm going to start steelhead fishing. If you went out with a guide for even just for just one day, your like knowledge and skill level, it, like you would be would skyrocket. You'd be off to the races, you know. And doing this class, like if you, I mean, you could do this class, build a boat, be completely satisfied, and have this amazing bow at the end end of the class that you're super proud of, that you put a ton of work into. You know, it's your bow, your hands made it, which would be amazing. But also, I think it also might spark that you want to try it again on your own. And I think, man, having that that first hand of something you know, guiding you through that process is, is truly invaluable. Now, like you were saying earlier, though, if you're not going to do that, like I would have been petrified. I'd have been petrified wood if somebody <laughs> handed me an Osage, an Osage stave and said, all right, go make a bow, you know, because you right. are going to make those mistakes. You know, I mean, heck, I showed up here, Jim, and I'm like, oh, you know, a, a rasp only cuts one way. Interesting. Good to know. <laughs> but now, now, you know, I don't know if I could, you know, go full on be like oh, I'm gonna go make a bow tomorrow but I'm light years ahead of where I would have been it's true very much true yeah it, re- it, re- it really cuts the learning curve you know but it's not uh, it's not necessary you know you don't have to come learn how to build a bow I've got tons of the YouTube videos showing you how it's just I can show you things that you're gonna have to make the mistakes to learn mm-hmm. you know so it, it, it kind of kind of saves you on some of that stuff yeah it does man but but carrying on, like, you know, let's say, so you do get either, either you purchase a stay that somebody's already done the whole, like, two-year wait thing on, whatever, you can you can do that, or you go and do it yourself and you, you've waited long enough. You know, I think uh, the whole forming process of working the stave into a bow, I mean, it takes, it takes quite some time if you have if you have time to dedicate to it as we've shown we could we basically did it essentially in two days but that was i mean that was two days of straight work had we've been more experienced in woodworking i'm sure we could have done it a little bit quicker i mean clay apparently can hammer one out in an hour and a half <laughs> uh so then when he said that we we really tucked our tails and and uh <laughs> 
in inadequacy. If, but if he was getting frustrated, it wasn't showing because I'm sitting there going, like, you're like, oh, how long does it take to make one? He's like, oh, I can have it knocked out in about an hour and a half. I'm working real hard. I'm like, oh man, like, took me like an hour and a half. Like, to- I wonder if he's just like mentally pulling his hair out. You know, <laughs> it's all gone. That's why he shaves his head. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, I think even the way that we started, uh, we got Bose here sitting in front of us, but. Working with the grain in the wood and uh, and seeing, I thought it was, I looked at tree rings a way I've never looked at tree rings before. I mean, there was, there's like this early wood and late wood and trying to work out this early wood, which is kind of this chippy, kind of crunchy stuff. And the late wood's the more like, I guess, not chippy, crunchy stuff. It's, it's, it's more like what you'd want out of a bow. You know, and working like the whole... The whole backside of the bow is basically that is one ring, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's all wild stuff. I mean, and why why are we doing that? So the back of the bow, again, getting back to the the forces that are applied to the bow when it's been shot, you know, the back is under tension, right? right? And so if you were to have if you were to be cut through a bunch of different rings, that just gives areas for those rings to come apart. And so by having one continuous annual growth ring along the back, you know, all those fibers are in the same plane. Uh, They're all connected and interlocked, and it just gives a more durable backing that can withstand that tension force. And rings are going to come apart realistically at that. There's the early wood and the late wood. They're going to come apart at that that early wood. It's almost like uh, it's almost a bit porous. Yeah, yeah, it is. And so you you can imagine if you, you know, on the back, if you have... Two different. If instead of having uh, a continuous growth ring like that, if you have two on on stacked on top and they're cut through, you know that one just like you said that that early wood layer gives a place for it to to come apart. Yeah, and uh, this late wood here that then we wind up with running the whole length of back. It's almost like it seals in everything underneath it, just with that one strong layer. It, it, it's pretty wild. I mean, when you think about something that's sixty plus inches long. And it's all one tree ring. You know, you look down right. at a tree ring when you have a cross section of a tree, and you're like, "Look at those little things, little baby, little baby things." We have that running the entire length down here. It's it's pretty cool, but I mean, it, it takes some time, it takes some effort, and we got some of the tools here. We should probably show. I mean, not only are we sitting at this, oh shoot, what was it called? Draw horse shape shape horse. horse. These are actually uh, uh, called stave masters. Stave masters. Oh. Yeah, technical, all fancy. Right. It, it takes some. It takes some tools. Now it takes more than just the ones that I'm holding up here. But we have, uh, Clay. What are what are your most used tools in this process? I know I have two of them. So uh, in your left hand there is a draw knife, yep. and that's an old vintage Greenlee draw knife that uh, all of my draw knives are were inherited. They've just been always been around here. They probably belong to my grandfather and my great uncles. Uh, they've just kind of worked their way down. They've always been here. Green Lee makes a good stuff. What, what were they using stuff. them for, do you think? Heck if I know. Making oxyokes, I guess. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, in your right hand there is the wood grater. The wood grater. <laughs> that is a great way to describe it. It's That is what it is. The otherwise known as a rasp. Yeah. That's, a, that's actually a farrier's rasp, so it's for horseshoeing. Yeah. Oh, no kidding, huh? Yep. Oh, Nice. Is that out of just because it's what was here, because we're on a horse ranch, or is it because you think it's best? Well, they are very good. Uh, they are very good tools, uh, but that's what I started with because my brother was a farrier, and I would always get his old rasps. Oh, and I actually, yeah. those rasps 
the horseshoers that come here to the place, I just get their old rasp. And they're still, they're a little bit, uh, they don't have quite the edge that they want for, for shoeing horses, but they still work great for uh, for building bows. Yeah, on wood. Yep. So we're using that a lot. I mean, you're using the draw knife to, at first, you're getting away big chunks of wood, trying to get down to that, that level, you know, one particular ring. Some of the other stuff that we're using was just even like these little pieces, just little cards of steel. Yep, little card scra- cabinet scraper. Yeah, yeah, and that was used to scrape away some of the wood. But what? How do you see as a bow maker? You know, you you've got you've got that back, let's say, but then you have all this kind of just crazy wood on top. How do you see it all? Like, where's the bow in there, and how do you get down to it? Well, I mean, you got to look at how how the wood lays. You got to look at how the the grain runs, and the way that I typically do it is I'll split the stave out, and then. However, that splits, I'll clean up one side. If you grab this stave here behind you, Marco, yeah. I'll shoot. I'm talking about. So you can see this side's kind of all rough and everything. Yeah. This is just the way the things split out. And then on this side, it's kind of I've got this more yellow. So this, just to back up, this wood is actually like a. Uh, it reacts to uh, UV light, mm-hmm. and so it'll turn dark as it's longer it's exposed to to light and so this stuff this darker colored stuff here has just been exposed longer and this yellow really vibrant yellow stuff was just stuff that i just took off yesterday and exposed that wood underneath okay and so after i've got the 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 woods or the staves split out i'll go ahead and clean one side up with a draw knife so it's nice and smooth and it's still going with the grain and then i'll take a compass and a pencil or sharpie or something like that and set it to about an inch and three eighths, inch and a half or so wide, and use this side that I already cleaned up as a guide to scribe a line that parallels it. Okay. And yeah. so then I'll bring this rough side into that, and then I'll end up with a parallel stave that goes perfectly with the grain. This is going to be the back of this bow here. This right? will be the back of the bow because this was the way that the this stave set in the tree was like this, right? The tree would have been like this. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this was the outside facing ring. But once you've got that, I mean, that's a big part of the process. Then all you have to do is taper the limb tips in, you know, at whatever degree you want. And typically I'll go from about 35 millimeters wide, the widest limb, widest part of the limb. And I'll taper down to about 10 mils on the, the knocks. And I'll do that over about half of the limb. Figure out how long you want it and uh, knock all the wood off on the belly and get it bending and put a string on it. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I found supremely interesting was the fact that the bow doesn't need to be, well, okay, it doesn't have to be straight in some of the regards that you might think it has to be straight. So that is where I'm going to hold up this bad boy that, uh, that Clay, you have been working on. This is not my bow because this would be complicated. Uh, having to try and taper the the end with all this stuff going on. But if you're watching on YouTube, you can see, if you're not watching on YouTube, imagine just like a serpent. That's what this looks like, but in wood. And it's crazy because at your handle here, from the handle going out to the limbs, I mean, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine changes or bends, changes of direction or bends just on one limb. And the other one, we have about an equal amount. And it that part doesn't really matter from from what you've said. There are parts that have to line up on this thing in order for it to work well. But, I mean, even if you look at it from this other side, it's kind of twisting funny. This thing is, this thing is 
downright wacky. I mean, that thing looks about as snaky as it gets. But, Jim, that, that was my big question. So what on this does have to line up so it will still function as a bow? So the only points that really need to line up are the knocks with the center of the handle, right? If you drew a line right from the knock. The very end. Through to so if you if I took a string and stretched from here to here, it would need to bisect this handle. Okay. okay. The reason being, you know, if you if you think about if you hold a bow like this and both limb tips are over this way, well, when you grab that string, the bow's gonna twist yeah, in it's your hand. Twerk, yeah. yeah. And so if you have those, <laughs> it's, it's gonna what, Jim? <laughs> I said torque, but it sounded oh. like torque. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't even have caught that, Mark. If you had said it. <laughs> Um, I, I heard it even as it came out of my mouth, it came out wrong. Sorry. Uh, but yeah, if you, if they're, if they're lined up, when you pull that pressure on there, it's just going to, it's going to put that force straight into your hand versus trying to twist the, the bow. Gotcha. Right. Well, and, and as we worked our bows into bow shape, they didn't just end up lining up. We had to do yeah. some things there. We used a lot of heat yep. and some, um, some clamps. Some clamps. And some, some jigs, I some, guess. Yeah, Is that what jigs. you call that? A little bit of muscle. A little bit of muscle. So yeah. maybe talk talk a little bit about that. And actually, I want to get back to the the belly of the bow a little bit, too. Well, we'll get to the belly. Yeah, so, I mean, once you've got the rough shape out, and it, like this one here is kind of to that point, you know, so, so you, I've made the parallel sides, right? Mm-hmm. I've tapered the uh, the tips in down to the knocks. And then I went ahead and just removed the bulk of the belly wood here. So these these limbs right now are probably, I don't know, 16, 17, 18 mils thick. And then through the tillering process, I'm going to work that down even farther. So I will get into tillering here in a little bit. Bending stuff. Well, maybe should we do the tillering before the bending? Well, we get, we need Either to way, we need to straighten kinda, it before they you tiller. It kind of happened at the same time. Yeah. Like we were doing both okay. tillering and bending, kind of in conjunction. Yeah. So, like if you have a, a really out of line, like uh, you know, you have a stave that's got a big big curve to it, and it's just not going to line up. You know, it's even hard to even start tillering because when you when you put that thing on the ground and push on it, just wants to roll in your hand, and it just it doesn't work out so good. Hmm. And so you have to get it to some point where you can heat it up and bend it into rough alignment. So the knocks again with the center of the handle. And for that, I just use a heat gun, primarily just in any old heat gun will work. Doesn't have to be anything fancy. You can get one at the uh, Home Depot for 25 bucks, heat it up. Um, and then when you heat Osage enough, the wood will actually plasticize and you can bend that thing and you can feel it bending. You know, mm-hmm, you can yeah. feel when that wood gives up or when it elasticizes, it'll start to sag, and uh, you get it to that point. You bend it where you want it, and then you let it cool, and it'll hold that shape. And so yeah. you can you can take a very crooked stave and line those three points up in in one plane. And you were saying that Osage is a little bit unique as far as like being able to use heat to do that. Yeah, it's very it, it reacts very well to heat, whereas some of the other woods are a little more resistant to it uh, they don't quite uh, they don't plasticize like that uh, and then some other ones like uh, like eastern red cedar or juniper just flat out you just can't do it you know mm. um, they, they'll they'll break you know the, the wood's just too brash and then you know using some clamps to keep it steady and you had a couple of jigs for example like we got this reflex in the tips you know that we just kind of clamp something to you already had a 
a general shape and a bore that we could clamp the bow to and work it that way. Is there a specific curve that you like there? Yeah. Yeah, about like a five-gallon bucket. That, that works pretty good. Okay. Five-gallon bucket. There you have it. Uh, <laughs> I, I, do, I did love how much stuff was just straight up eyeballed. I mean, we got the curve of our handles off of an old worn-out grinder disc. <laughs> so, I mean, that does go to just show how, how not fancy you have to be. Not that being fancy is bad. Mark's over there. Well, I'm not saying that it wasn't. You like being, you like fancy, it, Mark. Mark likes fancy. It was still a, you're still using a perfect circle. You're well, just, yeah. I don't know. Like, well, it's like it's just not like you had to go out and you had to get the, you had to go buy the jig for okay. bow handles. You just used what you had around. I, I also think Clay was making it look easy. No. Oh, I completely agree. <laughs> that said. But people do get caught up. Like they they want to know the 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 radius of the circle. They want to know this and that. And it's like. I don't, I don't know what the radius of the circle is. I just look around to find something that looks right, and I use that. And like, if I'm making a recurve, which I don't have any right here, like this, this bow's on the verge of being a recurve. The difference being, like, if if when the bow is braced or strung, if the the belly or if the string lays on the belly mm-hmm. or touches the belly, it's a recurve. Okay. Uh, with a long bow, the, the technical definition would be like there's no contact between the knocks. You know, the string does not touch the bow again. Okay. Uh, but if I'm making a recurve, you know, I'll use a tighter radius, something maybe like a paint can or even tighter. You know, for, for your bow, Mark, we used, uh, uh, I don't know, it was probably a five-inch, you know, diameter circle for, mm-hmm. for that. Um, so, I don't know, just pick out something that, that has a approximately radius that looks pretty good. And then, so what are you doing? What are you doing with that thing? Like, how are you? Like, how did you know? Like, oh, with your bow, we're going to need a smaller diameter one than with Jim's bow. Well, most of that I just use a pretty standard, you know, maybe like an eight inch or ten inch diameter circle. For your bow, I went something a little smaller because the handle had this had a big knot right there where your handle was, which mm-hmm. created that. You know, we were able to tilt the handle over and, and just the natural form of the wood. Um, but it also, it, it tipped sideways, but it also tipped forward. And so if I had used a bigger diameter circle, I'd have this really long fade, which you don't really need. And then it also decreases, the it takes up valuable real estate, which could be working limb, right? Okay. And so hmm. by using a smaller diameter circle, I was able to get down into that dip a little bit and bring that fade down and which gives us more working limb. Okay. Yeah. And explain too, just for reference as well, like what this reflex at the end is doing. I mean, for those, again, if you're not watching, we'll try and explain, but basically the whole bow throughout most of the center section and then certainly the section you're holding onto is generally straight up and downish when it's unstrung. And then at the ends, again, before being strung up and looking like a bow, they sort of curve away from the handle. And so that's done for what reason? Well, it it depends on how deep you want to get it, how technical you want to get into it. But uh, it gets, we were talking about a forced draw curve mm-hmm. yesterday uh, and energy storage and all of that stuff. And so the the function of reflex and recurve it changes the shape of that force draw curve that changes how much energy storage the bow is capable of, but it also changes how the bow feels when you draw it. Oh. And so if you have a straight limb bow, like no reflex, no recurve, just a straight flat bow, 
the curve is going to be more exponential shaped, right? It's going to be flat or it's going to be fairly constant. And then as you reach full draw, it's going to start stacking up like this. And you're going to feel that. And it's going to feel like when you get to full draw, you're, you're here, you might be gaining two pounds per inch. You might be gaining three pounds, five pounds, seven pounds, eight pounds. So if it's like this exponential curve, right? Mm -hmm. That's stacked. That's no good. You don't want that because if you change your draw length by a quarter inch, well, you're significantly changing your weight and it's uncomfortable to shoot. It's just all around no good. Okay. And so reflex and recurve uh, changes that. Uh, it, it, it makes the bow store more energy up front in the... <laughs> Got a horse going off. Um, in the early part of the draw and then smooths out that backside of the curve once you get closer to your fool's draw and decreases that stacking effect it makes a, a more comfortable shooting bow and then it can also make a bow that stores more energy oh, okay okay cool so you bend some stuff with this thing another thing that you want to do too is the heating of this bow sort of tempers the wood you mentioned that a couple of times yep. that's why you weren't heating the back side of it because yep. the back side has to be pliable it has to be able to to uh stretch kind of yeah be snappy mm-hmm. and if you harden that by heating it up letting it cool and heating it up and like tempering it you're sort of compromising its ability to do its job but the belly that's what we were heating a fair amount and that you didn't mind heating up yeah yeah so when you heat wood like that with dry heat it tempers the wood or hardens the wood it makes it more compression resistant but it it makes it less tension resistant. And that's why you don't want to heat the, you don't want to put very much dry heat on the back of the bow because that's the whole job of the back is to withstand that tension. Yeah. Uh, and you don't want to compromise that. But by heating uh, the belly side, you'll actually improve its ability to withstand that compression. And that's one of the things we talked about hickory early or earlier in this thing. Hickory uh, is a good bow wood, but it has a tendency it's not very good in compression, so uh, it's very good in, in tension. So you'll very rarely break a, a hickory bow on the back. What happens to hickory is the belly crushes, mm-hmm. right, because it's not very good in compression. But if you heat treat a hickory bow, if you take a dry heat and just cook the belly side, you'll harden it and actually make a pretty doggone good bow with hickory because you change the properties of that belly wood. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Man, that's pretty cool. That is super cool. Yeah. And even another thing, too, just sticking with the heat, another funny thing that can happen with the heat is we saw on mine, we've got a couple of little hairline cracks going, but they were going in, you said, the right direction. Yep. There's, there's, there's uh, cracks that don't cause problems, and then there's <laughs> cracks that do cause problems. And, the, and the, the cracks that don't cause problems, they're the ones that are what I call longitudinal cracks. So they just run with the grain. Mm-hmm. And as long as you've done your job right earlier and went with the grain, you know, laid that bow out with the grain, all of those cracks will run right along that, right down the center of your limb, no matter where that limb goes. You know, if you have some wiggle or snake in it, those cracks will run right down there and they're fine. They're not going to cause any problem at all. The, if you have a crack that runs across the grain, those are bad. That's a no go. That's, that's no good. Yeah. Cause then your grain is your fibers in there or whatever it is that's causing all that strength is interrupted. Yes. 
Now, I didn't get to see those, Jim, so... I know, I didn't show you because I figured you'd get worried. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Your cracks give me anxiety. Um, There's actually, uh, I think this bow has some. Let's see. If you look at the... Yeah, right there. See, I've got them filled in with with tight bond. Oh, interesting. So, you on yours, you didn't necessarily even like sand them out or anything like that they're just they're just kind of in there yep yeah. yeah they're just there character it's already got character hardly w- even shot it would you recommend so like we put that the urethane the urethane on does that kind of fill those in a little bit too will it, it, will it catch those and fill that in or yeah. would you recommend putting something in to fill those if they like those were pretty small but those and and the ones on this bow actually opened up fairly large so oh, i needed okay. something to fill them in okay but yeah the strength's all still there so now let's talk about tillering, right? Yeah. Let's say we got a bow that's bent up and you made it straight-ish enough. Pretty st- pretty dang straight. Yeah, straight enough. Now we're going to tiller the thing. Yep. So this is where you got like the thing, uh, it looks like a scene from the village when they open up that barn. There's like a red dress hung up on the barn. Anyway, that's what I always think of when I see this thing. <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> Anybody who's seen the village maybe knows what I'm talking about. Uh, but you've got this thing hung up on a wall. <laughs> And you stick your bow in there, and then you're just gonna you run it through its draw, or uh, I guess you 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 yeah. stretch the bow. Or what do you call that when you do it? Uh, draw it. Yeah. So you, there's a block. There's a block that's attached to the wall, about uh, five and a half, six feet up, and then down towards the base of the wall, there's a pulley. And so through that pulley, I have a rope run, and then the pulley run or the rope runs up the wall, hooks to the bowstring. And then the other end of that rope, you are you can stand back and you can pull that rope, which draws the bow down while it's sitting on that block. That's uh, called a tillering rack, and it's just one of the bow building tools. Uh, it allows you to stand back and just see how that how those limbs are bending, not only individually like on a nice arc, but then in relation to one another. Right. Yeah, and the ability to stand back. Yes. Like that's pretty important. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because it gives you, I mean, it, it it shows you things that you can't really see when you're right up on it. You know, you can look at the symmetry of the bow, and that's that's very important. And you're kind of looking at it, like you said a few times, it's not even so much that you're focusing really heavily on the bow. You almost got to, in, in some ways, loosen your focus on it and just look at the general shape. Mm-hmm. And it helps you see, because when we're, I mean, you know, again, if you're if you're seeing this right now, you're drawing wood off the belly side of these limbs and you're taking material away. So it's getting thinner and thinner and it's easy to, I don't know if you're a, if you're a novice like us, it's easy to, and and Clay, maybe it happens to you, but sometimes you tilt your, your scraper the wrong way. Sometimes you are winding up digging in a little heavy in one spot and it gets a little bit light in another spot. So you're, you're leaving more material and you're taking off more material elsewhere and that causes the bow, then when you see it on the tilling rack, that's what causes the bow then to, you'll see a nice even curve, and then all of a sudden it'll go totally straight, and then you'll see a nice even curve maybe again on the ends, and wherever it goes straight, that's because it's stiffer there, so maybe you, you need to take more material there than the other spots or something like that. And that's kind of what you're doing, right? You're just trying to even everything out, make sure it's it's not having any of these weird stiff and then less stiff spots. Yeah. Yes. That's that's the basics of tillering. Is your uh, you're looking for those areas that are that are weak, and you just mark those so that you don't take any more wood off there, and then you take wood off the the stiff areas, and you know you you 
keep evening those things out, removing wood from the heavy, from the stiff areas, leaving the light areas alone, and you're trying to get you know that nice smooth arc over this whole thing. If you didn't do that, like if you had a weaker area and then a real stiff area in a limb, is that going to cause a problem in terms of performance or actual like? Does the weaker area then is it doing? a ton more work than it should be doing and therefore maybe it, it it's going to be compromised and could break or yeah so you can get away with with minor you know air, minor stiff areas and weak areas for a time but you know if uh, if they're major you know if you have a what what's called a hinge you know an area that's like an obvious like you have a stiff spot and then there's one little area that's that's weak well it'll almost almost form like an angle like you'll have a, a, a an arc and then the radius like changes really quickly you know it'll start bending you know like on oh, an angle. Okay. those areas you know again sometimes you can get away with them for a time but the, every time you shoot that bow that weaker areas is we're having to work harder and those stronger areas aren't doing their fair share of work and so that weaker area just gets worn out and the mm-hmm. the stronger areas will overpower it and and the bow will end up either breaking or um, just not performing well. Um, okay. And so those a lot of times those areas will, will just stay bent. You know, they get crushed. The belly side get crushed. And, um, you know, they just don't have that snap like they should. Yeah. yeah. You were talking a little bit, too, about when we were tillering. There can be some things that are, like, somewhat deceiving. You're like, oh, well, this limb is bending way more than this other one. But the other one is already kind of started out in a different position or slightly different position so like what's going on there yeah so like a lot of this stuff it's going to be difficult to understand unless you're watching it happen right but you think i mean wood these staves are natural material right they're not they're not cut out uniform material and so if you have a bow that has like say the bottom limb has some back set, which means that the when if you put the bow on this rack with the back facing up, so the mm-hmm. part that, that that faces away from you when you shoot it, that facing up, back set would be you know that limb kind of kind of curves up towards the roof, and then you have the other limb, the one on the right hand side that has some you know it curves in the other direction. Well, if you put a string on that thing and pull it. Well, the the one with the that curves down towards the ground is going to look like it's bending a lot, even though it's probably not. It just already was. It was just already there. You yeah. Know? And so you know, little things like that, like you you just have to take that into account and realize that no, this right limb really isn't doing more work. It was just already bent. And then that's that's one of the things that we we changed on your bow is. Uh, we heated that. You actually had that problem. Yeah. And so we heated that limb and actually made it match the other limb. Yeah, we kind of gave the one some back set. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we heated mine a fair bit. Yeah. I don't know if it's like the one you, you know, I, I'm sure you've had ones up there more where you've had to heat them more. But sometimes, I remember you saying, you can just be there forever, just heating, changing, heating, yeah. changing. Yeah, well, you, ch- you change one thing and you see how that... Uh, makes things align, uh, you know, and then you just keep on making adjustments. And yeah. then sometimes, you know, when you, you'll fix one thing and then you see something else you got to fix. And if you heat the same area that you fixed the first thing, then your your first problem comes back again. So you got to oh. fix, then you got to fix both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So it's, it can be a little bit of a chase in your tail sometimes on those things. For sure. Yeah. But it, it turned out all right. I'm, uh, gosh, I'm eager to show it. But like we said, it's still drying. It's still drying. One of the sweet things I think you've done well is like talking about the, let's talk about the handles a bit. And Mark, you're holding one that's, that's pretty, pretty trick. Wait, you have that one, right? Or does Clay have that one? I've got Which it. one's the one? This that one, I think. The one that splits in two. But making the handle, though, too, that was pretty fun. Yeah. That, that, was, a, that was a cool part, because there's parts of the bow that, like your limbs in the middle, those you want to be fairly conservative with once they're pretty much down to the spots they're going to be at. You don't want to just go whittling away a bunch of stuff or trying to make super cool designs or something yeah. like that in them, because they're very structural. The handle was pretty fun, though. We got yeah. to make something that fit our hands, and, and and there's not a whole lot of stress going into the handle, so you can kind of make it nice. And if you want to make it a little bit more petite, or want to do something a little bit more unique with it, we could do that. You've even done some of these handles like this guy here. That's actually a takedown, makes it a takedown bow. Yeah, yeah. So the handle's not really, it's not bending, so it's not, uh, it's not a critical part of the bow. But you can see that one's made into it's like a put that one in your backpack. That thing is sweet. That's amazing. Yeah, I like that little bow. And you plug that back in, put the string back on, she's just good to go, huh? Yep. And you can cover this with uh, with some sort of wrap like this one's covered with rawhide. Oh, okay. And uh, you'd never, you put it back together, you'd never know it was two-piece. I was going to ask what the grip was on that bow. And that's the bow that you hunt with a lot, right? Yeah. Yep. The one you're holding? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, that's, that's just covered with rawhide there. And that's a one or two-piece bow? This is two-piece. It is two-piece. Okay, yep. Oh shoot! I never would have known. Yeah, no. <laughs> and I don't. I mean, I leave them. Like the reason I started making two pieces is because I'll, uh, you know, I sometimes get on an airplane and travel. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, there's no reason to have it. But man, I tell you, when when you're traveling with these things, a two piece is the way to go. Yeah, yeah. And you just have like a taper fit basically there, right? I mean, there's kind of a what do they call that? Tenon. Tenon. Yeah, it's like a tenon and socket type type deal uh, on these limbs. Um, but I show how to do this. I've got a thing in my book uh, on how to do this, and it's also on my Patreon site. But it's basically just like a recessed. You know, you recess this thing all the way around the boat, except for on the back. And then you fill in that, you cut it, and then you fill in that recess or you replace that removed material with like a fiberglass tape and epoxy. Yeah. And once that sets up, if you tapered your tenon right and smoothed everything out, it'll just pop pop out like that. And then you're left with this hard, this rigid uh, handle socket that your tenon fits right back in. That's super cool. Can you take like a one-piece bow, like the, the bows Jim, Jim and I have now, and do that later, or has that train sailed and you had to been thinking about that before? Nope. Yes, you can absolutely do that, uh, as long as you have enough meat left in your handle to do it. Okay. Um, you, so you can do that, and then you could also join billets, which are just shorter sections of stave, into a bow like that. Okay. Hmm. I think I think this one was a one. I can't remember. Maybe this was two billets that I joined. But anyway, it doesn't matter. It comes out the same. Gotcha. Yeah. Like you said, Jim, I mean, that was a really cool part of the process. One of the things that I liked about it is just because essentially you were just sanding, uh, there was less danger of <laughs> removing too much material, even though it did stress me out at one point. Because holding this two-piece bow is really, I was talking earlier, this was like my worst nightmare of uh, happening throughout the process. But 
Yeah. I mean, it was, it, it was, it was a opportunity to, I mean, all these bows are really super unique and, and, and really every attribute, but that's, you know, definitely a spot where it seems like you can customize it. Maybe a spot where you do want to customize it because everybody's hand is a little yeah. bit different. Yeah. So. yeah. That's what I felt too. Yeah. The whole rest of it was very much like utilitarian. Let's make this thing function. Let's make it work. And then it got to the handle and was like, well, now I'm going to make it fit my hand. Right. Right. And Which then, and you cool. could, you know, you'd shave away or, you know, use the, use the rasp or, you know, whatever, and, you know, do a little bit and check it, you know, check it for your hand and then, you know, a little more, check it like, oh, I want to remove a little bit more material here. I don't like the way my thumb feels, you know, I want to be able to wrap my finger all the way around. Yeah. That was cool. Yeah. Yeah. We made, uh, speaking of also, I guess this is a bit of personalization, but this, this kind of, you know, some people might have, uh, different people might have the same setting, uh, weight on the bow was another thing that we were able to kind of tune, so to speak, with our tillering process, right? So you had a, you had a, a scale between that that pulley and the bow, mm-hmm. and as we were pulling on it, we were able to see at what length of draw, you know, what poundage that that was pulling. Then we were going for somewhere around like forty five to fifty on ours, right? Yeah, yeah, and so that's one of the big questions I get um, is how do you you know, can't, first of all, can you make a bow of so-and-so weight? Like, is it possible? And people, for some reason, they, they, they find it hard to believe that you can make these bows like 70 pounds or 80 pounds or something like that. You can make these bows as heavy or as light as you want. Yeah. I mean, back in the day, they used to, what, like the British longbowmen? Yeah, they were. I don't know if those were self bows or if those were were, composites, but. They were self, uh, they were uh, English U, self bows, and they were pulling well over 100 pounds. Oh. 150 pounds. But yeah, you can make the bows whatever weight you want. Uh, and you guys saw through the process, you know, at first, when you first put it on that rack and pull it, you're, all you're doing is looking for major inconsistencies from side to side. You're just looking to get the bow bending evenly. Now, then once you get it bending evenly, you may be really heavy. It may be you know, if you were to pull it all the way to 28 inches, you know, it might be 70, 80 pounds or more. And so you have to keep removing wood, keep scraping wood off the belly while maintaining that even bend until you arrive at your, you'll eventually remove enough wood so that you arrive at whatever, you know, your target draw weight is. One thing that I noticed is that we probably could have, like when you have it on the wall, you had a couple of marks on the wall that indicated this is where a 26-inch draw would be, a 28-inch draw would be, and you could, you could pull the bow down to the point where that scale and where it was hooked onto the string would go down to the 26 or the 28, but it would it would take a significant amount of force. We were shooting, like I said, for like ballpark 50 pounds on that thing, and you were saying, you know, don't go over 55. Like, don't pull the thing so much that the scale reads over 55 because somehow that could almost put, like, a set into the wood or something. Yeah. So uh, the trick the the trick is to, you, you know, throughout this process, you're slowly working a little more draw, a little more draw, a little more draw. So you're working those limbs down into more of a bend. And the trick is to arrive at... Uh, your draw length and your draw weight at the same time. So you don't want to hit, you know, you don't want to hit your draw length, but still be way heavy because you're overstressing that wood. You know, if you, if you're, if you have a 28 inch draw and you're shooting for a 50 pound bow, well, you could draw it to 28 inches while the limbs are still too heavy. They may be 70 pounds at 28 inches. 
and then you could, you know, you could just continue to remove wood, uh, and, and eventually get it to 50 at 28, but you've already stressed that wood more than it needed to be. Hmm. And so I don't, I, I tell them, uh, everybody that comes, you know, takes the classes, like, you know, if there's, don't go above about five pounds over your, your draw weight, the okay. weight that you want, even though you might be getting at that, that weight at, you know, 20 inches or 22 inches or something like that, you need to take more wood off. If you're, if you're hitting 50 pounds at 22 inches, don't pull it to 28, you know, take more wood off and then just keep working it down slowly. Sure. Yep. Yeah. One thing that I thought was as we kind of got down to this step in the process where you've got the bow up there and, and you found that, I guess that symmetry between the limbs where you, uh, where they're flexing, you know, essentially identically, that's when you really have to slow down and you're literally counting scrapes like, you know, 15 off this side, 15 off the other side and really being mindful of the amount of wood you're taking off both sides. Cause you're really only working on one limb at a time. Yeah. So you kind of do one, flip it around and do the other. That seemed pretty important. Yeah. Cause once you've got, it's, you know, when you start getting close to a, a finished bow, you start getting close to that draw length and that draw weight. It didn't take much to change the way that bow draws. No. You know, if you take off uh, five extra scrapes in one area, you could be taking off, you know, half a millimeter of wood, and that's that can be major in in the final, very final stages of the tillering process. And so you really got to... You got to watch it. You got to kind of sneak up on it a little bit. Yeah. So you make a lot of trips back and forth, right? You go up to the tiller rack, you look at it, you see where you need to adjust, where you need to take off wood. You come back, you put it in the shaving horse, you take a little off. You go back to the tiller rack, and you repeat that process as many times as you need to to get to your final draw length and your draw weight. Because if you get impatient, you take a little bit too much wood off and you make a weak area, well, then you have to take wood. You can't just leave it there. Right. You have Everything to take wood there. off everywhere else to match that weak area. And then, you know, if you were close to your draw weight, your desired draw weight, well, you now you've overshot it and you end up with a lightweight bow. Yeah. And that's, that's uh, you know, most people that are building their, their first couple of bows, they're going to end up, you know, they may be, they may want a 55 pound bow, but they're probably going to end up with a 25 pound bow <laughs> because they, you know, you make those, it's just a natural thing. You make those mistakes and that's how you learn. You know, you, you, you make a mistake late in the process and then you fix that mistake and, but you end up with a bow that's a little bit lighter than you might've wanted. Mark, I think you were a bit more patient than I was because I noticed you didn't have as many trips back and forth to the tillering rack as I did. I had far more, uh, far more of times where I was getting sent back not to scrape the entire limb but to no do this part and then don't touch that do this part and you flip it around don't touch any of that just do this little part you know and uh, I had I had my fair share of that clay would <laughs> you know which actually just with the pencil which I thought was cool you'd be like mark off don't don't cut wood here or you know yeah. don't shave off wood here and and uh well we're up. trying we're trying to hit to a certain value and like you say it wasn't like we were trying to go for exactly you know, it's one number because another thing you said, Clay, is that after you use the bow a little bit, it's going to go down naturally. So yeah. you might you might finish the bow at spot on fifty pounds at twenty eight inches or twenty six inches or whatever, and then after you use it for a while, it sounds like it'll go down a bit to where at that same length later on it might be forty eight, forty seven, or something. And does it yeah. generally it, it kind of settles at that point then? 
Yeah, in my experience, uh, the bows will, you know, initially, if you shoot it a bunch, it'll drop a couple of pounds, but then they typically kind of settle out. Like this bow here has been 53 pounds at 28 inches for years, you know. What do you, th- is that about an optimal for big game hunting you find about that 50 pound mark or? Um, yeah, I mean, there's no need to shoot anything over, I'd say 50, I mean, you can kill any animal in North America with a 55 pound bow mm-hmm. and you know, the, the heavier bows are just harder on you, you know, they're harder mm-hmm. on your body. I don't shoot them as accurately. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like that. I like that, you know, mid fifties, uh, 50 to 55 pound range. Mm-hmm. But I have a relatively, I mean, my, my draw is almost 29 inches. So I get a little bit more power stroke uh, than somebody with a 26-inch draw. Hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Right on. Do we miss anything? I've covered a lot. What about... Uh, well, you're never... Yeah, and, and I'm sure we missed some little intricacies because there were many. There are many. I mean, cutting the knocks in. I mean, there was definitely... There was a few spots where I was glad that you were doing it. Yeah, you, you just Using took some over. specialized tools and also it's like... Cutting out the shelf and cutting out the, the knocks at the end. Yeah. Again, though, Jim, like, I mean, Clay doing those... Steps, the bow's like... I mean, we've been working on this thing for two days. Clay comes in, draws a line. Big saw. Saw. Japanese saw. Yeah. Learned what that is. And... Google it, you'll know. Chisel. I mean, and just boom, boom, boom. Yeah. What angles were you using there? How did you even know? I mean, it looked like you just went for it done at a time or two um but you know i'm like how deep you can go with those shelves you know i'm just looking at the the how deep the handle is how deep the riser section is um how wide the limbs are and just i mean over time i've just got a feel for how deep i can go and still have enough material there to support the stress that's being being placed on it the angles you know i'm just going at the top of the handle and and and, you know drawing a little line and sawing that in there and then using that saw as a as a stop for my chisel cuts okay chisel that uh chisel that shelf in there i think cooper's got some really cool footage of of that so yeah if absolutely curious, well he's got really great footage of the whole process really <laughs> and, then, and then the knocks at and the then end cutting in the knocks a tile yeah. a tile cutting yeah tile saw tile saw it's just a little round carbide blade that fits on a hacksaw works pretty doggone good I mean, I'd that, say so. That is one thing that's just absolutely amazing to me. Because, I mean, there's a lot of force and a lot of stress on these bows. Held on by that little I guy. Mean, yeah, the limb tips are small enough when they're not cut. And then now, I mean, there's just not a lot there. Yeah. Doesn't take much. That's Physics. crazy to me. Physics. And Sometimes I, I guess you need on, a lot of it. Sometimes you're shocked at how little of it you it, need. Exactly. <laughs> on top of that, Clay, you're talking about you know, using your bow as a walking stick at times. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not like uh, you got some, you know, delicate flower here. I mean, these things are built to be used. I love that. Don't see a lot of compound guys out there using their compound bows as walking sticks. Well, no, my camps will get all gummed up, Jim. Oh, no, my cams. <laughs> my cams are my cams. Ain't got no cams to worry about on this one. That's right. Yeah, I was going to ask when we, add, when we add the wheels, but apparently not. <laughs> I dig it. It is a it is a sweet process, and uh, and as we mentioned, Clay has got the whole I mean pretty much the whole thing process on YouTube. You can see it. I remember watching uh, it was a while back when I was trying to get my first trad bow. Uh, I watched the whole process on how to make one out of a Home Depot maple maple board, and it's pretty cool. You know, I definitely uh, definitely we we can't recommend enough. Come down to try it with him, take a class, uh, or try it yourself if you're interested in this sort of thing. It's very, very rewarding. 
super rewarding. I mean, something that I've been really curious about for a long time. And uh, I don't know, like, am I a professional bow, build, bow builder? No, but I'm a heck of a lot better than I was. And I don't know, man. I feel like I've I've grown as an outdoorsman. This just keeps making me want to go back to Arizona again. We yeah. should do that. And just wait till you wait till you find yourself five yards from a from a big game animal with that bow in your hand. You'll get a phone call shortly afterwards. I, I guarantee yeah. it. Yeah, I just need want some pictures. <laughs> pictures, well, indeed. Hopefully, we can give you some. Very cool. Well. Clay, thanks as usual, and uh, we do have one more here, though, because in order to be able to shoot said animal at five yards, and even at five yards, you should at least know how to shoot the dang thing, but even at uh, uh, at some greater distances as well, it ain't like something easy, chewing bubble gum. No. And walking at the same time. Sometimes For some people, that's not easy, but it ain't as easy as that. It's, uh, it's a bit more complicated, and, and Clay is quite good at it, so he's going to tell us a little bit uh, of some tips and tricks to how to shoot these things really well. And, and probably in that one, we might even have our bows as visual aids that you can check out, too. So we'll see you on the next one. All Thanks, right. Clay. All right. Thanks. Bye. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show. Maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like. So that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released. So that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you can take with you to the range, out in the field. Or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So, again, everybody, thanks and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.